And clouds are actually seen so many times in this film from where the ships are landing. The title sequence on clouds, the landscapes of different parts of the world, we see these heavily clouded atmospheric landscapes. The actual area of the ship where Abner Costello stay, they're surrounded by this cloudy atmosphere. It also connects to the idea of this dispersed kind of environment where America is in the other nations are dispersed and they're not connected and they're spread apart and in a way they're spread thin like the atmosphere of the clouds. Denis Villeneuve is a god on earth. When it comes to filmmaking, he's at the peak of anyone's career right now at the top of his game, one of the most exciting filmmakers in 2016. He gave us Arrival. It was his first uh, foray into science fiction, Arrival, and it was really fantastic. I was expecting something along the terms, along the lines of Close Encounters. Very similar construct of an idea for a story, communication with aliens, but it became uh, much more of its own thing, and I was really pleasantly surprised, shocked, and absolutely blown away. Um, I had been a huge fan of Denis Villeneuve for a long time, like you, with Prisoners, with Enemy, um, in his earlier films, Polytechnique was uh, one of the first ones I saw. Um, it's He's just a really incredible filmmaker, and to see him in the world of science fiction, uh, it's just a match made in heaven in a lot of ways. Some directors are really suited to the genre. What's interesting is he's only done science fiction ever since he did this, because immediately once he finished Arrival, went right into Blade Runner 2017, or 2049 in 2017. <laughs> Blade Runner 2012. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously we know he's made Dune, and he's working on Dune Part 2, and then hopefully Dune Part 3 Dune eventually. <laughs> I mean, it's Denis Villeneuve episode. <laughs> It is what it is, Anthony. you got to accept the fact that I'm going to bring up Dune every time we do an episode. <laughs> Science fiction's in in great hands this past uh, decade. And all, I mean... I Horror, too, yeah. In 2010s, 2010s and 2020s, science fiction's been doing very well. And I like how... I love the superhero genre. If you think about... Superhero movies are basically science fiction movies. It's pretty much science fiction. I mean, if if you look at the the broadness of the term science fiction, of yeah. course, super beings are yeah. part of that. So I I actually do put superheroes into the category of science fiction. I don't but do then, that. But then this is like without the superhero comic book background, there's, it's a different kind of science fiction, and I really enjoy it. And uh, science fiction is one of my favorite genres: horror, science science fiction, and then indie drama. Those are my top tier um, favorites to watch because I'm. I mean, we love science. I love the idea of exploring things that we don't even grasp yet. And th this movie explores the idea of time in a really incredibly unique way. I mean, it's shocking that Christopher Nolan didn't make this movie, but, you know, <laughs> it seems like right up his alley. It's it bread really, and butter. Just, just the way that the time's presented in terms of the structure of the film, the storytelling, the nonlinear structure, cross-cutting. We don't want to spoil things immediately because if you've never seen Arrival, we can't recommend watching it enough. And this is a movie that demands demands second, third, fourth viewings because I think I've seen it now four times. And wow, once you, you under a lot of movies, man. <laughs> once you understand the film and all the things that are themes that are presented to you and obviously the ending, the second, third watches, I start crying within ten minutes of the movie because I understand what I'm seeing versus a first time watch. You don't really understand the time and locations and places of events that are happening in the first act of the film. That's why I I always that's why I threw out Christopher Nolan because his movies, when they do discuss time, they are rewarding on rewatches and they get better on rewatches. They become a different thing in rewatches. Arrival, it's a different movie the second time you watch it. When you understand what you're seeing in the first act of the film with Luis and her character, when you understand the actual context of it after the first viewing, when you watch it again, it is very much like a different movie. 
and it actually adds so much more to it. It's, it's a rare movie where, in a lot of ways, you know, maybe the second watch is better than the first watch. Absolutely, I agree. Because um, the first watch is so much of a mystery, and for the most most of the time, it's not so much you're being misled, but you're being shown things, then you it presented things in terms of the memories and, and the sequences within Luis's mind and her life, where you think it's you you think it's something that seems obvious, but then. I don't know. It's hard to do yeah, without spoiling. Relax. Get I'm just saying. But I'm yeah, just saying. Yeah. I'm saying it without spoiling. I'm, yeah, too, I'm geez, trying here. He's trying. Well, it's just like, don't it's talk like, about it's it. It's like open heart surgery. It's there like are, operation. There are other things you can. <laughs> Let me finish. <laughs> Let me finish my operation. I almost got the wrench made. <laughs> well, let's not get into. But then the when you rest- watch it a second time, it's like you understand it fully, and it's like, wow, this movie is so much more than I thought it was. Yeah, it basically said the exact thing that I just said. Now before we get, <laughs> before we get more into James's nonsense. I have some great letterbox reviews I found on Letterbox of Arrival that I think would be a lot of fun to read. I hope so. <laughs> First up, we actually have one from George Carmi, our friend. George, this George. is one of his favorite movies. All right. And George wrote on Letterboxd, five stars. Might be the greatest movie of all time. I don't know. I'm high. <laughs> Arrival is greater than everything, including mini M&Ms. I'm watching the Batman now, and this motherfucker really dresses up like a giant bat. Ain't no way he gets away with this in real life. Like, bro, you're a grown-ass man in a bat suit. Anyways, I'm Batman. <laughs> that was his letter That's his review for Arrival? Yeah. <laughs> he also said Almost Famous is the best movie ever made, so... Almost Famous is great. It's, it's a terrific great. movie. It really is. Uh, what else you got for letterbox reviews? And these are just other fun ones, not other, one stars? These are all five stars. Okay, cool. And four and a half stars. Uh, Liam wrote... I just... I'm going... I go for entertainment value. Yeah. Yeah. Liam wrote... Still waiting for a Heptapod Duolingo update. <laughs> <laughs> if I hear, like, I can imagine, like, the ink blots and then just, like, the ding, ding, and all the sound effects from Duolingo, which drive me nuts. Like, when you're, like, DMV and you hear someone on Duol- Duolingo, like, 20 feet away. <laughs> Need that little green owl to teach me their language. I want to be besties with those intellect- intellectual space octopuses. <laughs> I wonder if it teaches terrible phrases like it does. Duolingo just teaches you. Yeah, you don't want to have to pot on Duolingo. Yeah, we're gonna learn how to say ant and elephants. There's a horse at the gate (laughs) and have to (laughs) pot. You can't use it in real life. (laughs) Next up, Lucy wrote, as Owen Wilson would say, Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, first time I saw this movie, that's what I thought. (laughs) And then our last letterbox review, Alan wrote in 2017, Amy Adams says hi. The Academy. I'm calling the police. <laughs> she didn't get a nomination. Nothing. She well, ironically, she got a nomination for everything but the Academy. Yeah, I think she's the only actor to get nominated for every major awards award institution except for the Academy Awards. Is what I read. And the Arrival is the first Best Picture nominee to not get a single one of the first the for, of the year. Uh-huh. First, the only Best Picture nominee of the year to not get an actor nomination as well. It got eight nominations in one win and one best sound design, but it didn't mm-hmm. get a nomination for acting at all. Wow, that's I mean that's shocking because what's I mean Denis Villeneuve obviously is brilliant and he made the film what it is because this is based on a short uh, novella, um, and it's actually a you little, don't have to say short novella. Novella is already short, Anthony. It's based on a little novella. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you wouldn't say no, not. <laughs> It's based on a little novella. <laughs> it's it's a little. I mean, for the most part, it's about the same, but it has a lot of big differences um, from the actual short story that it's based on. And so, it's not exactly a straight up perfect adaptation. But Denis 
brought this really unique story to the screen in in a way the only way it could have worked. Um, a couple of things he changed was in the short story there were 112 uh, ships that landed. There were actually nine ships that landed in America instead of one. But they weren't exactly ships; they were sort of mirrors. So, well, so they were ships, and inside of the ships was this mirror. And in this mirror window is where Luis and the other scientists uh, from around the world communicated with the aliens. However, the aliens were actually hovering in the atmosphere of Earth on their main ship and communicating through the mirror. So the heptapods were never actually inside of the ships uh, that arrived. And so Denis Villeneuve wisely was like, let's make it smaller in scale. So it's 12. And let's make it so that the aliens are actually physically inside of the ships. That works better. Um, it, it just cinematically... It suits that for the story. It, absolutely. It, it absolutely works better. But the thing is, this movie, Denis Villeneuve, he understands that, like, Amy Adams is one of the best actors alive. Let me just put the camera right up on her face, and she's going to be able to carry every scene. And let's set the movie up as well. 2016 Arrival came out. When mysterious spacecraft touched down across the globe, an elite team, led by expert linguist Louise Banks and Hawkeye, are brought together to investigate as mankind teeters on the verge of global war, Banks and the team race against time for answers. And to find them, she will take a chance that could threaten her life and quite possibly humanity. Denis Villeneuve adapted the screenplay with Eric Heisserer from the novella by Ted Chang called Story of Your Life, which was published in 1998. That was the original working title of the film as well. However, Test audiences did not enjoy it very much. Again, eight Academy Award nominations with one win. No acting nominations at all. I'm surprised it didn't win visual effects either. And Johan Johansson could not get nominated because too much of Max Richter's song of the nature of daylight is in the film. So it disqualified him from a nomination on a budget of $47 million. This film grossed $203 million worldwide. Very successful. What was the budget? I'm sorry. $47 million, wow. $200 million globally. Insanely successful. Not to mention, this is a really, I'm sure, highly rented movie. People talk about this a lot in the film community, film Twitter, film talk, film tube, film YouTube. Everyone loves Arrival. It's discussed often. I see cinematography clips and images all over the place. So I'm sure it's an adored movie around the world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And the thing with uh, Johan Johansson's score is this actually happened with Johnny Greenwood for There Will Be Blood. And there's a couple of Penarecki tracks used in that film, like Richter's song, uh, The Nature of Daylight, in this film. And what happens is it's not so much about how many... It's, it's, it's really more is the theme of this movie... Does it is it felt too much like it was the song for Rick, Richter's song felt like the theme of the movies and that's what happened with There Will Be Blood where 
even though uh, Johan Johansson made over an hour's worth of music, the Richter song was like the movie. You know what I mean? And they used it twice in the first act and then in, in, in the finale. So Book when end, a, yeah. yeah. So when a, when a song that isn't made for the movie is used that prevalently, it's not really so much how many minutes it's used, but it's more of like, d- does it feel like this is the theme of the film? And if it if that's the case, they disqualify the score. It really is. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song. It's obviously used multiple times in film. I, I think there's like five other really good yeah. examples of On the Nature of Daylight in cinema. But I think it's used most profoundly in, in Arrival. Yeah. And it bookends the film in addition to the way they edit the film. But also there are bits of it sprinkled throughout depending on what Luis is seeing, whether she's having quote-unquote flashbacks of her daughter who's sick we hear often tones from of nature on the nature of daylight, but the score that Johan created in general was just really terrific and mostly analog based. All the sounds that they created using sequencers, synthesizers, samplers, just like he did for Sicario and Prisoners, all almost done analog. And he created really more than just a score for Arrival. It's more of a soundscape. It's really yeah. this ambient world. Obviously, the sound design in this movie is terrific, and the sound of the heptapods, the sound of their ships, really great stuff. But in addition to that, what Johan brought to the sound design with the music he created, whether you're hearing vocals of singing, of choir, of of beautiful voices, you're hearing animal sounds in his score, you're hearing so many different awe-inspiring, ethereal, and even alien sounds from just the music to create an incredible atmosphere that this film does really effectively in terms of feeling feeling very alien. You know, the the ships aren't like anything you've ever imagined, that the alien description the alien size the alien details their design is unlike anything you you could ever fathom yourselves not to mention the reveal eventually i guess we can start getting into a little bit spoilery stuff now we think we're seeing the full size of the aliens for the majority of the film but then we realize it's just basically like their feet Mm -hmm. or their hands to an extent and they're massive four or five story beings with these huge bodies and we were just really communicating with their hands to an extent so the design is wholly unique in every aspect, which makes this film feel very alien. And what makes Johan an impressive composer is just two years before this, he composed the Theory of Everything score, which is really just like heavy piano and orchestra and very traditional and very light and breezy. And then he does this. And it's like, what what range of a of an artist he was? Like, he, really impressive stuff to be able to go from that to that to this film. And I love the design of the film. And you get a lot of... It, it does feel like Prisoners in terms of its aesthetic, in, in terms of its coloring. Uh, he, Denis and his, in this time DP, Bradford Young, um, very desaturated, very cool tones throughout the entire course of the film. Um, and it just is very reminiscent of Prisoners as well as the cloudy weather. And clouds are actually seen so many times in this film. We see clouds all over the place from where the ships are landing. Uh, the title sequence is the title comes up on clouds. Uh, the landscapes of different parts of the world, we see these heavily clouded atmospheric landscapes. The alien environment, the the actual area of the ship where Abner and Costello stay, they're surrounded by this cloudy atmosphere. And then the language that we speak is kind of just representative of that with the clouds. And it also connects to the idea of um, this dispersed kind of environment where America is in the other nations are dispersed and they're not connected and they're spread apart and in a way they're spread thin like the atmosphere of the clouds and it really takes us coming together becoming one whole to solve the entire problem and also becoming whole as a race 
but also becoming a whole as in terms of the language, in terms of the circular language uh, that Luis ends up becoming uh, fluent in and, and, and envelops her entire being, basically. So the clouds are seen throughout this entire film from start to beginning in so many different ways, and they're very um, relative to the themes of the film. Aesthetically, it's a very impressive film, and Bradford Young is a terrific cinematographer. And Dirty Sci-Fi is what he Dirty and sci-fi. Denis Villeneuve were going for. That's the look that they created for Arrival. Denis Villeneuve wanted to feel like this could ha- this was happening on a bad Tuesday morning, like when you were a kid on the bus on a rainy day, and you dream while looking out the window at the clouds. Scandinavian photographer Martina Hoogland, even now, was a major influence on Bradford Young for the cinematography and look of this film, especially with her exhibition exhibition and book Speedway. To quote Bradford, there's a book called Speedway by a photographer named Martina Huglin. Even now, it's just motocross bike racers in these races at night in the snow. She did a set of portraits of the actual riders. She shot them taping ep- taking epic falls and watching them get out in the snow. It seems so worldly, but otherworldly at the same time. I looked at the photographs early like this is the kind of film you want to make. This dirty science fiction. And I recommend checking it out. We'll put uh, photos of this photography book from Martina on the video version of the podcast, but it really feels like what Bradford was able to capture cinematically, This these incredible portraits, plus Patrice Vermette, who's an often collaborator for Denis Villeneuve. He is a terrific production designer, got an Oscar nomination for this film. He did not do Blade Runner 2049, but he did do Dune and Dune Part 2, working with Greg Fraser and Denis on the visuals of those films. But I think he's a really special production designer, brings a lot to this film because... The scope of this film is massive in terms of the global scale and obviously intergalactic scale, but at the same time, it's very grounded. We're in very small locations, very tight quarters for the majority of the film. And the visual effects, you'd be surprised how much CGI is actually in this movie because even though it looks so organically filmed, which a lot of it is, they do a great job blending their CGI in because they're not world building so much with CGI. They're still filming locations, vast wide shots of farmland, grassland, wooded areas. But what they're doing with CGI is they're obviously creating the aliens, creating the alien ships and the heptapod ships. But every time you see helicopters, tanks, oftentimes wide shots of soldiers, even dirt roads, adding trees, vessels in the water, ships, anything like that, helicopters flying through the air, CGI and it's wow. really impressive and even the sequence where Luis is inside of the massive ship at the end of the film that really white atmosphere you're talking about the clouds her hair was done with CGI she was wearing like a mocap dotted suit in that sequence but the CGI is done really well where it's just seamless and, and disappears into what they actually film so they actually film locations and like for example one of my favorite shots of the movie is when we're getting to the big bean, the uh, the big heptapod <laughs> ship. And we get that incredible 360 helicopter shot of this army base that has just been erected around where that ship has landed from a distance. We have a campsite, basically. We have trucks. We have sh- building structures. Now, the structures, and they actually built that army base for real. Obviously, there's a lot of great shots on the ground there, a lot of handheld great cinematography, so great practical set building. But that 360 shot... There's five helicopters on the ground. There's uh, maybe 100 soldiers walking all over the place, trucks moving around. All of that is CGI added in post-production. So they filmed the base from the air, added helicopters, added trucks, added people. So just they, they 
added detail to cinematography to create beautiful cinema, CGI shots. And what <clears throat> what makes Bradford Young different from most other DPs is his style of cinematography. And in a way, he heavily influenced the new look of Star Wars, shooting Solo, a Star Wars story, which is really a great-looking film. That's all you'll say about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only nice thing you'll say about Solo. No, Alden Eyrick did a great job. I'll I like that I too. like Solo. I, think I don't like the third job. act, but I enjoy it. Yeah, the, I don't it, like the Kessel Run, too. I don't yeah. like the origins of that. Let's not talk about it. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it looks really good. It looks good. really good. Yeah. So Bradford Young, his style of cinematography influenced the new look for Star Wars, especially the TV shows, especially The Mandalorian. And then Greg Fraser yeah. was Rogue One, obviously. Exactly. So, But what Bradford likes to do is he likes to shoot in the toe. Now, shooting in the toe... Like... Yeah, just like the toe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lighting term. <laughs> so you you I'll point it out, and you'll be able to see it from now on when you watch Arrival, um, as well as The Most Violent Year, um, and Solo... So shooting in the toe is Bradford likes to shoot with very low light and very low contrast. And so the toe basically refers to uh, creating a curve with the light uh, from shadows to midtones to, to highlights. And it's not a balanced curve. Um, so there's no really true blacks in this Im the imagery. Um, and even the shadows are really kind of light. So they he crushes all the dark shadows. So there's really no contrast. And there's really no... A piercing highlights except for obviously where Abbott and Costello are and it's really interesting photography uh, because we're so used to with film uh, heavy contrast and um, extremely saturated colors uh, that's another aspect to his cinematography very uh, muted color tones and you see that in solo in solo there's a lot of sequences that are extremely dim lighting uh, but you can still see everything that's going on even in a very low light situation because he takes away the contrast so he he, he crushes the contrast so Shooting in the toe is something that he really, a couple other DPs do, but he really uh, became a heavy user of it in these large-scale films. And it really suited this film, um, again, with the idea of the clouds that we see as a main motif of the film. So I think it looks beautiful, uh, excellent cinematography, and beautiful color correcting. Uh, however, I do like Roger Deakins. He added a lot of color and contrast to Blade Runner 2049. I'm not sure Bradford's cinematography would have quite felt the same if Denis hired him for Blade Runner. I think he was doing Selma anyways. Cause Selma was 2014. Okay, so he did yeah. Selma first, then this. Yeah. I can't remember what he did afterwards. but Or he did Solo after. Yeah, Solo was 2018. Yeah, okay, so yeah. he was busy doing Solo, yeah. so he couldn't have done 2017 anyways. I mean, Blade Runner 2049 anyways. And speaking of the interior with the very bright sequence of that massive window, you could say, they actually built the interior of the ship and that large tunnel. So, obviously, the exteriors of the wides of the ships are all CGI, except for, you know, when your uh, Renner's character is brushing his, hand, brushing his hand against the surface of the ship. Sure. You're only using actual surfaces when you're using close-ups or mediums, so you're not getting wide shots of a ship. But the interior sequence, that massive chamber, they built that. It's huge. It's great behind-the-scenes videos, behind-the-scenes photos of this massive chamber that probably that tunnel runs maybe – a hundred feet, maybe more. And then that inner chamber where the large window is, they built that entire area, that entire set. It looks really terrific, but that's just great practical filmmaking. And I love Denis because he doesn't rely so much on CGI. He needs it to make this movie, but he's not going to overdo it. He's not going to do the entire movie on green screens and blue screens. But let's build this massive exterior, this interior of this massive CGI ship to make it feel even more real. And it just looks really incredible. And it looks organic and... Alien at the same. It looks 
organic to Earth mm-hmm. at the same time as being alien, if that makes sense. Yeah, I really love the interior of the ship. And so first of all, it's really fascinating because they were actually trying to figure, they were struggling to figure out how the scientists and soldiers were supposed to traverse this vertical tunnel. Yeah, yeah. Because if you, the way it's arranged is they're actually going up into the ship vertically. And they were trying to figure out for a while, how do we make this logistically possible? And then they came up with the idea that seems pretty obviously uh, obvious after the fact, but obviously it took a while to come to the conclusion to affect gravity uh, in a horizontal fashion so that when they went up into the tunnel, they fell on top of the wall, which was a wall, but now it's the floor. That way they're able to actually traverse and walk vertically up because of the gravity shift. And so that's just ended up being a really beautiful, beautiful shot and really fantastic moment for the film to also be like, yeah, we're on earth, but still things are different in the ship. And that, that added to like the alien nature of it, where even though we're still on the earth and in our atmosphere, they step into the ship and it's like they're on an alien planet already. In exactly, a way. Yeah. In a way it feels like, like they're stepping on alien turf. Yeah. In the spacecraft itself. So it owes its design to an asteroid actually called 15 Eunomia during research director Denis Villeneuve became attracted to Eunomia's insane shape like a strange egg and thought that kind of a pebble or oval shape would bring a perfect sense of menace and mystery to the spacecraft. While the shape of the ship was decided early on, Denis Villeneuve had great difficulty, like Anthony said, imagining that interior. And the aliens themselves, I really adored the design of these because... I've never seen one quite like this, where they're massive, enormous beings. Usually, you know, aliens in film can be humanoid, can be odd-looking, but size-wise, usually around our size. If you're like an alien, sort of like in War of the Worlds, Spielberg's movie, they're human size to an extent, but they're very creature-like. They're little, yeah, they're little guys. Yeah, but they would still mess yeah. one of us up, probably. They've got weird arms and limbs and faces. But usually they're the size of humans or a little yeah. bit smaller. But I love the concept of... This massive round ship that inside these beings could be as tall as the ship almost or, or if not mm-hmm. pretty close to the to the size of the entire ship now to quote indywire i got some great details here the seven-limbed heptapods across between a spider and octopus are charcoal, charcoal gray and oval like their shell-like spacecraft and their circular logograms spew forth like florid ink blots. That's how they communicate with those logograms, expressing the beginning and the end of thoughts all at once. That's what I found really fascinating about the way they talk and communicate these circular ink blots. They're very complex phrases of not just what you would say in terms of dialogue or language, but also a feeling gets put in there as well at the same time. It's not just translation of words. And they don't communicate with sound. Yes. So it's important. That's a great question that this film presents. Like everyone assumes when aliens come to Earth, which I love how they don't land. They just arrive. They're not, it's not an invasion. It's an arrival. What happens if aliens come to Earth, but they can't speak? Or you have to try to figure out how to communicate with them. But these logograms, that's a weird word, logograms, were particularly challenging for production designer Patrice Vermette. To quote him, we looked at hieroglyphics, but Denis didn't think they were alien enough. And my wife, Martine Bertrand, is a painter and asked if she could take a crack at it. The following morning, she presented a series of drawings, and one of them was this logogram that looked like an ink blot. It was perfect. We reverse engineered it into a series of over 100 symbols. And according to visual effects supervisor Luis Morin, 
the aliens have been traveling for thousands of years and are really, really old. And the reference for skin was whales and elephants. They don't walk like spiders, but move in an unusual way with slow hip movement because of the gravity and the mist. The alien language is an abstraction of time. Hybrid tested fluid simulation with ink and developed an organic look that flows out of the aliens in a zero gravity way and generates the logogram. To make it less 2D looking, they added volume. Now, what's really also interesting about these heptapods, I, I said earlier how their ship looks almost organic to Earth and alien at the same time. And you could argue that the aliens themselves kind of follow that same pattern of looking like they could be a species similar to what we have on Earth because what's most believable about them being alien to an extent of also maybe organic to Earth is their similarities to cephalopods, squids, and octopus, you know, from their body shape to their tentacles to their ability to squirt ink out. Now, in many ways, it makes sense to use the squid and octopus as models for alien life, according to Quartz.com. The oceans are like an alien world already with an atmosphere we cannot breathe that gives birth to bizarre forms beyond our imaginations and cephalopods are about as far from the classic mammalian arrangements as you get above the surface of Earth. So they're like the most alien creatures to us. You can think about it, yeah, exactly. Yet they display surprising intelligence. Octopuses use tools. They play. They solve problems and puzzles. They may even engage in warfare with improvised weapons. Whoa. They're the only invertebrates that displays a level of thinking. Scientists ascribe to consciousness, indeed any aquarist, who has attempted to keep such creatures in captivity learns quickly just how smart these animals are and just how much work is required to keep them happy and healthy. Individuals exhibit different personalities in this species with some that are cooperative and friendly and some that are markedly not. Researchers have also found that without enough mental stimulation, captive octopuses quickly become distressed and even harm themselves, not entirely unlike the behavior that we humans exhibit in response to solitary confinement. And Juno felt the same thing because we were gone for four days and he came. I came home and he was like, where have you been? Where were you? <laughs> he had a knife out. <laughs> Etching the days on the wall. <laughs> it was three days, Juno. <laughs> also, our roommate checked on you, so you're fine. Um, Drama queen. Yeah. And Abbott and Costello, it's fascinating. And I actually, in other countries, uh, and specifically Italy, they were actually called Tom and Jerry because <laughs> they were f- that familiar with Abbott Costello and like that culture. The, someone should call them Ben and Jerry, like the ice cream. So I mean, that's my biggest weakness is Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> What's your favorite one? Uh, it's um, uh, it's probably uh, the Stephen Colbert one is really good. It's no, just, the Jimmy Fallon one. She got just got bits of Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, in it. <laughs> so it's got real bits of Fallon. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's, it's got his fingernail clippings. It's a little bloody, but make sure you eat it cold. <laughs> but the language is really fascinating, and they actually did create uh, a pretty big uh, thing to work, a pretty big scale of language to work with. So Villeneuve and Eric Heiser, the screenwriter, created a fully functioning visual language. Um, their teams managed to create a Bible, basically, which included over 100 different completely operative logograms, those circles, 75 of which are actually featured in the film itself. And... The actual language was created by Montreal artist Martine Bertrand, and her son actually drew all of the drawings of of Hannah's drawings in the film, which is Luis's daughter. So her son actually made her drawings in the film, which is very cute. That's very interesting. But the language is everything. Um, that's basically, obviously, one of the main themes of the film is language and memory and time and how 
in this film, everything's intertwined. I read that human beings' intelligence is metered by their language. It's a, basically like a test, uh, an example of how intelligent they are. In terms of like how much they can communicate with? Exactly. So what we can, how we can speak and how we can write is a meter for our intelligence. And in this regard, it's also uh, translated to time in the film. And so humans in, in, interact in the world in the plane of an arrow of time. The arrow of time is linear time. How we speak, how we write, how we think, it's all in a line from beginning to, from beginning to end. Past, present, future to us. Is exactly. Line, yeah. There's nothing, it doesn't go in any other direction except one direction. That's called the arrow of time. And that's explored in this film as well as the circle, which is the communications and the, basically the plane of existence of the heptapods where they think in a circle. Time is not relative to them. They think they live everything at once and yeah so it's it's interesting because that's the way they show it really well with louise where she can tap into memories in the future that she hasn't experienced yet because like you said it's all at once even though it's a circle but that means that it's really just you're the direct center point you can access anything really exactly and it's not so much that louise she's clearly not and we're gonna be spoil it all right now it's coming out we're, man it's been a while so it's been a while it's been a while <laughs> louise is not time traveling She's experiencing memories, and human beings, we, we understand time through memory. That's how we understand the world, through our memories of the past and how we translate it and relate it to the present and also how we think about the future. It's all in our head, and memory is important for us, and memory is what Luis is experiencing, although at first watch, we think these are memories of the past. We think that we can assume, based upon what we're presented, is that she had a daughter named Hannah, who passed away of an illness and now she's dealing with the repercussions of that she's dealing with the fallout of that trauma and she's still going forward with her life but she's is carrying this burden within her well, well just to pause for a second what's really great about the filmmaking is it makes it seem like she's repressing these memories yes. it's really effective and it's it's great because the writing isn't giving anything away and what's also interesting this she starts experiencing these memories once the ships arrive it's all connected it's the first, it's the catalyst for this all beginning for her. And because human beings understand time through memory and understand life through memory, that's why as she's learning the language and become, becoming fluent in it, she's beginning to think in this circle. She's beginning to think in heptapod. And that's why she's seeing these visions. And she's not traveling to the future. She's not like, it's not as though she's like inserting herself into like, oh, this future date to see this memory. These are just memories. They're moments. And it, it's still the same way that we experience memories. Something will remind us of a moment or we'll think of a memory or a song we'll play and we'll think of something from our past. That's what's happening to Luis in this film. She just doesn't understand that they're memories from her future. And it's not that she's seeing the future. She's thinking of memories because her mind is becoming less linear and she's breaking away from the arrow of time, which all humans live on, the plane that we all live on and experience time on. Since she's breaking away from the, the arrow and she's entering the circle of time, everything is all at once. And that's what the heptopods' minds are like. It's not like they're accessing, oh, let me go back to this memory from a thousand years ago or a thousand years in the future. It's all with them at all times. And Luis is becoming that in her mind, everything all at once. And... It's really just not so much time travel, but looking back on the memories that haven't happened yet. 
because she's still becoming she's in the middle of transitioning into this new plane of existence within her time in mind what's fascinating about that specifically with Luis is they talk about that theory Renner's character brings up the theory that if you learn another language your brain starts to change it starts to think differently because you begin to think in that language which is the weapon you know we find out that the aliens are coming to earth they've come here to present us with a weapon basically a tool though because they don't really understand the difference between weapon and tool how we believe it and this tool is their language so that we can experience time all at once to an extent for not everyone on the planet but for very special people like louise and in three thousand years time we find out we'll they'll need our help our very advanced civilization three thousand years hopefully we get past the iphone <laughs> and we can help these aliens out but what's interesting about it with Louis specifically is she's a linguistic expert. She is probably fluent in five, six, maybe seven languages. So it's really and fat. proficient at many others. So yeah. yeah. So then you think, how does her mind work? Where if you learn a new language, your brain changes. So how many times has Louise's brain changed to think in a different language? And how many? And can she access those different ways of thinking? Her brain is like so malleable up to this point because she's done so much language and communication research and learning that maybe only someone as intelligent as her, as educated as her, could possibly learn the language of the heptapods. Because sometimes when I watch this movie, I'm like, does everyone on Earth gonna get this power? We're all gonna learn how to speak the heptapod language. I think it's gonna be reserved for very special, very intelligent people like Louise that have a deep, deep understanding of not just language, but communication, because there's a stark difference between language and communication in this film, which Louise points out to her, her superiors multiple times and the importance of the nuances of language because one of my favorite shots of this movie of the entire film that looks so incredible these grand shots exteriors spacecraft everything one of my favorite shots in the whole film is a whiteboard so the colonel played by Forrest Whitaker is kind of grilling Luis about we need to get to that question that I want what is your purpose here I need I need an answer to this ASAP. We need to get there. And this is after she's basically giving basic English lessons to the heptapods. And so on the whiteboard behind Luis is a very complex math equation, maybe multiple math equations all over the place. Just complicated numbers. I could never understand a single two inches of this whiteboard, let alone a, a digit. And so what she does is she erases a large section from the middle and Renner's character's like, no, 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 don't erase that. Because he's probably been working his butt off on these equations and these mathematics and these science experiments. And she writes that simple phrase of what is your purpose here, right? That's the sentence. And then she breaks down just the complexity of just the simple sentence and how nuanced language is. And it's surrounded by the most complex math you can imagine. So I think it's just a great metaphor for how complex language is and communication is compared to math and science, it's just as complicated, if not more. And I think it's just a great shot to show the themes of language versus communication. Yeah, the complexity of it. Because you're talking about, because she's describing, okay, how do you, this is a we noun. We need them this to associate they just need to know what the, They need to know what a verb is. They need to know you as a collective versus yeah. you as a singular in, in purpose. Where we have to understand, they have to understand purpose. That's a really important scene because Whitaker's character, I mean, he understands that this is a crazy situation, but also he's trying to rush things he doesn't quite understand even i mean obviously not as close to her how important it is to make the heptapods understand their language just as much as we understand their language 
it's a two-way street she's basically trying to say she's like i can't teach them we, we can't learn from them if they don't know how to speak our language either so they both sides need to learn the other side's language for communication to really work and for there to be a much lower chance of any misinterpretations because misinterpretations in the situation could be life or death and have huge consequences so she's trying to stress that and i really like the relationship because the colonel when he first comes to her office he's like i'm here because you're the best and she remembers they worked together previously as she was a translator for a mission that they needed help with and so they actually had worked together however he doesn't feel like he wants her on the team and he even though she does have the security clearance needed to be on that site she kind of like tries to sway his opinion to let her in and he basically rejects her he's and he's like i'm gonna go talk to a couple other people and then she tells she's like i know you're gonna talk to what's his name whatever that bozo's name is ask him what sanskrit word what the sanskrit word for war is and as a test later on a couple scenes later the colonel comes back clearly not happy with his interview with the with the other uh, linguist expert and she asks what did that guy give you for an answer and it wasn't the it wasn't the right answer so so he asks what is the sanskrit word for war and she says we need more cows and so she's trying to show, show that she is even amongst linguistic experts she is the most suited person for this job and she's not just trying to get on she's trying to help and when he understands that how important she is he takes her right there a desire for more cows desire for more cows get in the helicopter get in the <laughs> chopper <laughs> because she's showing that even amongst experts there can be misinterpretations and yeah. mistranslations and that could mean the consequences of that could be huge so she he, she's trying to show that i'm the right person for this gig Let's get into some superlatives, and then oh, how yes. about we head to our intermission, then we'll get back and break down Arrival even more, because there's so much juiciness to discuss with this Let's film. Let's do it. So superlatives, who, superlatives. Anthony, is the MVP of Arrival? Got to go with uh, Denis Villeneuve, especially after reading basically the synopsis of the short story and seeing how he expanded on the story and how he basically evolved the story for the screen in amazing ways. Uh, his direction... His vision, directing the actors, everything about this film. It's a very complicated movie. He made it work, and he made it digestible for audiences. So he's going to be the MVP. Yeah, he's the MVP. Just the storytelling alone of how do you translate this to cinema and changing it up with bold decisions and massive changes from the source material in very effective ways to tell the story in a movie. And... I'm sure that they, the writer wasn't so. Like, I'm sure he doesn't have too much he control. Said he, he said he was very happy with it. Yeah, the yeah. end result. But I'm sure at first the major changes were like, "Oh, you're really gonna just turn into nine ships instead of 112." All right, let's see how that works. <laughs> but I think visually, it's just he's so great at decision making. He knows what audiences demand from a viewing experience. He knows how to capture suspense. He builds it so well with this film. Plus the editing, the nonlinear storytelling, showing the future and the present at the same time throughout the entirety of the film sets up a very emotional film and really kind of a family drama at the same time as tra kind of traveling through time to an extent as well as this great original science fiction alien film. It operates on so many levels so well. Plus a couple of really solid landing jokes. Yeah, some good jokes. All right, Anthony. Best scene from Arrival. My favorite scene is when Luis actually writes with Abbott. 
and they write together. Oh yeah, when the the ink comes out of her, yeah. he gives her the ink. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, he, yeah, they they, they, they do her, it together. Yeah, yeah on her, either side of the screen. Yeah, yeah, he gives her some of the ink. He's yeah. like, here, <laughs> your turn to draw. <laughs> <laughs> because it shows how she's evolving as a human being in a way, and how connected the two of them are because of communication, aliens from one another, and yet they're writing together. I think that's that was my favorite part of the movie. And she's writing in their language, yes, exactly. Their complex logograms. Yeah. Logograms. Logogram. Logograms. Oh, that's a better way to say it. Logo, logograms. Um, my best scene is going to be when Luis removes her suit inside that chamber to reveal herself to the aliens because the communication's not landing. They can't really figure out how to get it going. They're scared of each other, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're just as scared of Luis to an extent, even though they know it's about to happen. But her removing her suit, really she sees the little bird chirping, and this is like the fourth time they've been in the chamber. The bird's fine. There's no radiation here that's damaging. Yeah, the canary in the coal mine is fine. Exactly. Yeah. So re- removing the suit is very, you know, kind of a scary sequence for the humans in this chamber, and it's a really exciting moment for the audience to finally take off that suit. They want to see your face. So I think it's a really special moment because then then Renner's character does it as well. Then Abbott and- goes, you're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> but it really makes that connection between Abbott Costello and Luis and – what's Renner's character's name? I keep forgetting. Uh, Renner's character? Yeah. I got it right here, I, man. I don't want to just call don't, him Renner. Don't worry, man. His name is Renner. I'm kidding. It's, it's Ian Donnelly. <laughs> Ian. Ian. So Luis and Ian making that connection to Abbott and Costello, it's essential. And I, I, did, I love the scene. I just made the, the canary in the coal mine connection because I always thought of that. The canary's there. And that's what... Canary, but the, the tunnel looks like a coal mine. Yeah. The entire interior looks like a coal You're mine. A genius, man. Whoa. That's canary wild. in the coal mine so that... There's oxygen to breathe. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. And the ship looks like a coal mine. Wow. That's pretty amazing. clever. Pretty yeah. clever stuff. Still works. Uh, this is also uh, responsible for my favorite meme. My oh, favorite, the whiteboard one? My favorite meme is Amy <laughs> Adams in the orange suit holding up the whiteboard. And in the film, she writes human. And she has like this look of concern on her face. But someone wrote Sam Jackson's line English motherfucker, do you speak it? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my, it's my favorite meme. I posted it like a year ago. It's really good. I, it's it's every time I think of it, I crack up, man. It's it's a perfect meme. That's really great. Top tier meme. Really great stuff. S tier meme. That's <laughs> so funny. All right, what is your favorite shot from Arrival? My favorite shot is actually in the same sequence, uh, the first time they're there and the crew approaching the window for the first time in the tunnel. It's just an incredible set. I love the window and the mystery, the fear. I feel what – the first time I saw the film, I was feeling what the characters were feeling, mainly Ian and Luis. And I was just like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. It's really beautiful. It's a great shot. It's a great scene the way they build up to it because what Denis Villeneuve does so effectively with this film, and it all kind of leads to this moment of the revelation of what the aliens look like, is mm. that takes like 25, 30 minutes to get to that point. And we don't really see much of it. The first five minutes of the movie is sort of Louise, her day-to-day, as well as then the flashbacks to the future of her daughter, who we think this is the past, regression of trauma, when it's really not. It's a regression and sort of not wanting to accept the future, you could say, to an extent subconsciously. But we get word of an invasion, aliens arriving on Earth. We don't see the ships really. The the best shot we get is uh, the television screen inside of her classroom from a distance and then 
sort of on her computer screen, see a little bit, but we don't really see the alien or the ships at all until we get to the site. And then finally, 25 minutes into the movie, we see what the aliens look like. So Denis Villeneuve does a great job building the suspense and giving the audience a desire to want to see these creatures. I need to see what they look like. Can we get there? It's great storytelling, great filmmaking to give the audience something to thirst after something, you know, to quench that thirst. Finally, it's a great sequence. So what's your favorite shot though? So the whiteboard shots, one of my favorite shots, but besides that, my, my next favorite shot would be the 360 helicopter shot of nice. the army base. It's yeah. really incredible. It's like 20 seconds. It feels like long, just again, a combination of building the actual set, the set piece with the structures and then CGI helicopters, CGI trucks, CGI soldiers everywhere. It's really terrific. And those clouds, man. And then in the distance, we see once it finally comes around the entire army base, we see the ship in the distance, yeah. not that far away. It's just massive. And honestly, anytime there's a wide exterior of a ship, like it's, yeah. it's incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really is. Who's the best actor of this film? It's kind of obvious. It's Abbott. Abbott. <laughs> The heptapod. Great. This is my favorite heptapod. <laughs> Giant hand. <laughs> no, it's Amy Adams, obviously. Amy Adams. Like I said earlier, like Denis relies so heavily on so many close-ups of just her face. And she really carries every scene she's in, really maintains an incredible presence and connect connection for the audience. And she's so talented. She can emote so much with her eyes. And she she's one of those actors where when you watch her, you can you can see that she's actually thinking as the character. You know what I mean? Like she's thinking as Louise. You can see that on her face. She transforms. Amy's one of yeah. the best out there. And what's so fascinating about the character as well, in addition to everything we've talked about, is an acceptance of a hard journey, a hard path, where she knows she's going to have a child, and she knows if once she learns the language and she's experiencing time all at once. She has to accept this journey, and she does out of love and out of knowing that she's going to feel pain for the rest of her life, knowing that her child will die, knowing that Ian will leave her because she doesn't tell Ian until eventually that after the kid's grown up a little bit that she's going to die of a rare disease. And Ian probably leaves her, you can assume, because why would, we, why would you do this? Why wouldn't you tell me? If you're experiencing time all at once, you knew this was going to happen. You can assume that's the argument they had that led to their splitting yeah. up. So she follows that path, and it's she's an incredible character. I think one of the most underrated in cinema the last decade, probably. And, I mean, all the scenes that she's... All the memories she's seeing, the future memories, they're all the most impactful moments of her future because that's what memories are. We, we remember the biggest moments of our lives, the most impactful, the most traumatic, the most emotional. You know, those are things that people latch onto, and that's why we're seeing those. We're not seeing just, like random memories from the future we're seeing the most important memories from her future because that's what happens to us and when we look back on the past we look on big moments what's your best line from the movie anthony uh when louise says i forgot how good it felt to be held by you oh man because she hasn't like She's really never, held them they've yet. never embraced yeah physically but they haven't gotten there yet but in her mind she has she already has experienced and, and then it's her really understanding her truly understanding the grasp of the circular time in her mind he's like wait did i get drunk or something <laughs> <laughs> when did you hold me I like this i don't remember that at all uh my favorite line is when louise says if you could see your whole life from start to finish would you change things and then ian replies maybe i'd say what i felt more often i i don't know but i think that's a great line if because if you ask yourself that if you could see your whole life from start to finish would you change things and sort of what this film plays with 
is the concept of fatalism and determinism. Has anything, has, is there a possibility for Luis's path and human's path from changing and diverting? Or is it supposed to, is everything supposed to happen? And the heptapods obviously know what's going to happen. They know that that explosion is going to happen. They know Abbott's going to die, but they as well go into this knowing everything that will happen. Or is there a possibility to divert from the plan? Who knows? I think that the complexity of the language means that you have to be able to accept that. And so that's why I don't think even the majority of people should ever learn the language because I think knowing the future, and especially if it's a tragic future, many people won't be able to accept that. It may try to do everything they can to change it. Whereas Luis takes the, the, high, the high road and makes the difficult choice to accept a tragic future. Yeah, and that's why I said earlier, it's not like everybody on Earth is going to learn yes. the heptapod language. It's not going to be on Duolingo. It'd be chaos. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're not going to have an update heptapod <laughs> for your trip to space. All right, let's move <laughs> into our intermission, everybody, and then we'll come back to arrival. And before we continue, the before we continue, the best way to support our show is to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Every single patron has access to weekly bonus episodes. There's an ad-free version of the podcast as well on Patreon Patreon for everyone at a minimum tier of $5. And we're also doing holiday cards, greeting cards in the mail for everybody who's $10 minimum and up. All you got to do is go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast to sign up today. So many great perks. But again, if you want a holiday card from Anthony and I that will feature hilarious photos of us plus Juno. Juno in a want Christmas to, sweater. If you want to get it in the mail from us, handwritten from us, then sign up for Patreon. Minimum $10 tier this holiday season. You just do it temporarily for a month or two to get that card. It's so. a great card. Again, the ad-free experience of our show is now available on Patreon for the $5 tier and up. So if you want to listen to all of our new episodes... Every single one of them, ad-free. They're on Patreon now for $5 and up. And also, another great way to help the show is to share us with your family and friends. Word of mouth is the best way for a podcast to grow. But also, leaving those five-star ratings and reviews is essential. We're over 2,000 on Spotify, which is huge, but we're almost at 2,000 on Apple. We need your help to get to 2,000 on Apple because I want that 2K, man. I want that 2K, (laughs) all right? I want my phone call. I I want want it. I want it now. (laughs) (laughs) So help us out. Leave those written reviews. We love to read them on the show. I'll get to one in just a minute. I just want my phone call. (laughs) This episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. They make a great gift for the movie lover in your life. Christmas is coming. Get that movie lover their favorite movie poster from MoviePosters.com. And don't forget to use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order right now. Right now. I now. Want it right now. Right now. Right now. <laughs> Let's get into the intermission. You ready to start with the movie quote competition? Ready. 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 Here we go. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. <laughs> That's a good quote. It is a good, good quote. Say it again. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. I have no idea. Almost famous. Oh, nice. Lester Bangs nice. says it. Nice. 
Okay, here's my quote. Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. Oh, I know this. I know this. Hold on. Ah, what is it? I can add some more lines to it. No, no, hold on. Just say it one more time. Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. Tar. No. No. It's It's not about a musician. It's not about a musician. You want some more it's lines? Not. not. No, hold on. I got this. I got this. Just say it one more time. <laughs> I could say more lines. Just say it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> say it. Where's the line? Where were the drugs going? <laughs> Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. God damn it, I know this, man. I freaking know I it. I can throw out a couple more lines. Just hold on. Give me a, <laughs> give me a second. It's three times. I know. I just... You're not going to get it. Well, because you keep yelling at me. But you can, like... <laughs> Do you want more lines? No, no, just talk for the people. What, I'm, we, what, what we, uh, delay this? All right, hold on. Um, just let me give you more lines. Come on, No, man. I you want... You don't have it. I want... I got it, man. I do. That's the thing. <laughs> what it's, is it? It's, it's there. Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. This is holy crap. All right, one more line. <laughs> okay, more lines. You're the best in your row. You sit right up front. What is this? I don't know, man. Steve Jobs. God damn it. He's talking about how, uh, what's his name? Is uh, He's great, but he's, and he's like, what do you even do? You don't write code. You don't build anything. What do you do? And he's like, I play the orchestra. Yeah. It's a really good movie. Yeah. Great movie. Good quote. Guess this movie released here, Anthony. Capote. Oh, Capote was 2004. Five. Damn. Damn. Did you know Bennett Miller, who made that movie, is making a Christmas Carol movie? Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Nice. This is his next film in production. He hasn't made that many movies. He has not. But he's he has made not. a lot of really good ones. He only makes really good movies. Moneyball is excellent. Capote's excellent as well, if anyone's never seen it. Hoffman won an Oscar for it. Foxcatcher, too. Foxcatcher's great. Wait, what was the question? Oh, you're just... It's <laughs> it just an anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> never mind. All right, what year did Shame come out? Like, shame? Yeah, I'm like a kid in science class. What? <laughs> shame, shame, shame. Steve McQueen's film. 2000. And Glorious is 2009. Shame After Hunger. I'm going to say 2007. 2011. 2011? Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Ooh. so that's After Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. After Inglorious. Oh. Yeah. I don't know why I always thought it was before. Hunger is before. I think Hunger's 2007 then. Could be 2007. Could be. Could be 2008. Who the <laughs> fuck knows? <laughs> cool, man. All right, movie pop quiz time. What is the name of Amy Adams' character on The Office? Uh, hot girl. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the first episode she's yeah, in. That's what she's referred to as. In the Well, she's got a name in the show. She's Emily. In, no. Sarah. He's never going to get it. <laughs> I don't know. Katie. Katie. I wouldn't have gotten that. <laughs> Katie. Hot Girl's kind of right. No, what's the name of the episode? Yeah, but Michael refers to her as Hot Girl. No, he doesn't call her Hot Girl. He calls her, they all just think she's hot. And then they call So her. I got it right. So they call her Katie. So I got it right. It's really insensitive to call just a woman <laughs> Hot Girl, Anthony. 
<laughs> so you don't think Amy Adams is hot? I think she's an incredibly attractive person. <laughs> but I don't just call her incredibly attractive person. I call her Amy Adams. I'm referring to Michael Scott, okay? <laughs> Canceled. Too Canceled. Too late. You got me. You got too me. Late. Too late. Take me in. <laughs> Take me away, guys. <laughs> All right. How many Ridley Scott movies has Michael Fassbender starred in? And can you name them? So we got Prometheus. Yes. Alien Covenant. Yes. First time they worked together? Hold on. Hold on. Hold the phone. Hold Hold everything. Hold, please. Hold, please. Glove, please. Glove, please. <laughs> Keep, please. Glove, please. Keep, please. <laughs> Keep, please. <laughs> we always... The fucking goblet doing in... The, doing the Harry Potter. <laughs> goblet in, in uh, Green Gods. We always, that's our most used quote, I think. Keep, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's always funny. It's always funny. <laughs> and does Mr. Harry Potter have his key? Oh, yeah, got it here. <laughs> Did you see the meme someone put of uh, <laughs> it's like Harry like lost because Hagrid just abandoned him at, at the train station? <laughs> no, it was um, it was someone. It was a someone worried meme. It was Dumbledore yeah. asking Hagrid, so you brought him to the train, right? <laughs> you took him to the train, right? You told him how to get on the train, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah, I think I did. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think it was the Padme worried look. It was a, no, it was a video meme. Uh-huh. And it's it's of Theo Vaughn. He's like, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, that's yeah. what it was, yeah. Yeah, I definitely, oh, yeah. I totally did that. Yeah. <laughs> I did that, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was, I got, we guys said to us, like, by 20 people, it was amazing. It was I'm gonna, so funny. All right, back to the question. How many films has Michael Fassbender been in for really Scott movies? Are you going with two? I'm going two. Eh. What else is it? The Counselor. Oh, my God. I the forgot counselor. he made that. Yeah. I just forgot about that movie. Yeah, it's not one of Scott's best for sure. It's, I mean, yeah, it's got a great cast though. I mean, Javier cast is insane. Brad Pitt, yeah, insane cast. Great cast. Written yeah, by movies. Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, three movies. Cool. Good question. All right, who we have for haters this week, Anthony? Any unsubscribes? What do we have cooking? Raider. I'm pretty sure we have a, a couple unsubscribes on Twitter. I'll pull those up as Ooh, well. Oh, are they like real or are they? Uh... No unsubscribes. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, yeah, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, the fun ones. Okay, we got. <laughs> We got a bunch. Hold on, I'm sorry. Yeah, these are, I love how Anthony always like, oh, we got a bunch. And he just starts laughing. <laughs> well, that was a previous one I did last episode. <laughs> so, Blaine's on our V for Vendetta episode wrote, don't know what Bonfire Night is? Unsubscribed. So, Bonfire Night is what we celebrate, quotes, in England on the 5th of November. And usually the weekend closest to the 5th of November with bonfires and firework displays in public. Also, some people will buy their own fireworks and set them off. Sounds like a normal Tuesday in L.A. To celebrate the foiling of the gunpowder plot, as you talked about in the episode. Great episode, lads. Blaine, smiley face. So I didn't know that people did that to celebrate Guy Fox. Yeah, so actually Rob Ellis DM'd us with that. Also the same anecdote explaining Bonfire Night, also known as Guy Fox Night. Due to your culture ignorance, I'm afraid I will have to unsubscribe. <laughs> Sorry, bud. <laughs> and then... um. That's actually our only unsubscribe, just because I've been traveling so much and I wasn't looking at. Oh, you know, I got some. Sounds got like some. an excuse. I got, yeah, I got actually. I've four. been tired. <laughs> Ignatius Jackson two three five. Great wrote, name. Yeah, it's my middle name. You guys laugh twice as loud as you talk, and my mother is trying to sleep. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Starts the Italian. And then Duncan Martin Baker wrote, "You guys forgot dread." Unsubscribed. <laughs> Talking about characters who wear a mask the whole time. And then Batman who laughs wrote. 
Y'all didn't shave your heads for this review? Unsubscribe to me for Vendetta. <laughs> oh, man. So we actually got a bunch. I've yeah. been growing out this lettuce for a while. You should have shaved it. That would have been fun. No, but for an episode, no. For a better cause, sure. And I cut my hair once for um, to donate it. Remember? Yeah, I remember that. Your yeah. hair was I donated, very long. I donated, I think, 10 or 11 inches. Yeah. Something like that. It was long. I remember I cut it on camera. Yeah, you cut it. I yeah. filmed it. Yeah. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Now I have a great five-star review. Made me feel really good about myself. <laughs> what did? <laughs> Donating it. Uh, I bet it did. Yeah. No, it was actually sweet. And they actually sent me a card uh, saying the kid that got my hair. Aww. It was very cute. Oh, my God. It was, really, it was like a seven-year-old. Did they write it? No, the kid didn't write it, but the nurse who was worked at the hospital wrote it. That's really sweet. Yeah. Well, we have a great five-star review that's very sweet as well. Nice. From Roman Lettuce. Roman! Speaking of lettuce. <laughs> well, they're named Roman, not Romaine. Like, it's just Roman <laughs> Lettuce. That's good. I like that. Absolutely love this show. Found this podcast on a bit of a whim, and it has slowly become one of my favorite listens while I'm at work. The brothers are absolute comedy, and the episodes flow naturally without any awkward air or talking over one another. You can tell they really respect each other's viewpoints. <laughs> Not so much anymore yeah. talking over each other. <laughs> it used to be pretty bad. The early episodes yeah. is, shut up, man. <laughs> Plus, as a casual movie watcher, I enjoy learning about some of my favorite movies as well as listening to some I might not even consider. Five out of five, if you haven't already given this movie cast a listen. Hands up emojis. Praising. Thanks, thanks, Roman Lettuce. Roman Lettuce, huge fan of you with Caesar dressing. Thank you so much for the review. It's really sweet. And, Anthony, what is your streaming recommendation for this episode my recommendation is the sting on the criterion channel i haven't done a criterion one for a while so the sting is a great film with paul newman and robert redford it's a great caper caper film where they pull off this crazy elaborate heist of a criminal a wealthy criminal and it's just really fantastic they made it actually only a few years after butch cassidy and sundance kid from the same director Really phenomenal. It cleaned up at the Oscars with eight wins. Wow. And, and was eight? The, yeah, and was the most successful film of that year at the box office. Did it win Best Picture, too? Best Picture. Holy crap. That's and a I lot. mean, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, they're just so amazing together. Like, they're such superstars, man. When they're on screen, you're like, this is a movie. A movie. My recommendation is going to be a Denis Villeneuve movie that not a lot of people have actually seen. That in the past, I've rec recommended On Sunday which is a terrific film he made, but I'm going to re recommend I Enemy. I you saying on Sunday. No, on Sunday. <laughs> on Sunday. On Sunday. French word. But then I'm going to recommend now Enemy, which he made with Jake Gyllenhaal. It's a doppelganger movie, very mysterious, also based off a book, and it's on Hulu right now. Oh, it's one of their only good movies. I can't. What are their five good movies? I can't recommend it enough. It's really terrific, but it's flown under the radar for yeah. even Villeneuve fans. It's because, I mean, I think because he makes so many science fiction movies now, those get most of the attention. Well, yeah, but also Prisoners and Sicario, before that, even those cast a shadow on Enemy. But the thing is, you got to understand, like, when there's a gun in a movie poster, people are more likely to see it. True. This, but this also he made, he made Prisoners and Enemy the same year they came out in 2013. True. I think that that's one of the reasons why, as well, that Prisoners got way more attention than Enemy when they both got released. Obviously, a couple months apart, but still. And uh, Melanie Laurent is really great in that film, in, in Enemy. It's a really terrific movie. Really, really good. And Sarah Gadden, she's really good in it, too. And, and it was edited by <laughs> John, John Smith. 
<laughs> Isabella Rosalini also great in it. <laughs> Sorry, I like to make fun of Anthony's IMDb. <laughs> I don't know who edited it off the top of my head. Set manager was Stephen Price. Did you say John Smith? <laughs> yeah, John Smith. The most fucking basic name in America. <laughs> well, Stephen Price did the set management. Uh-huh. Set management? Yeah. <laughs> set manager. How do you know that? No, I, I did it as an impression of you. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. He missed it. Or it's, not, it's not a real set manager. No, not real set manager. <laughs> Could be. All right, let's get back into Arrival. And where, where do you want to leap off from now? Well, we were talking about earlier about Luis accepting her future. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of the film. And it really shows the difficulty of this language and how... Not many people can do this because you have to be able to accept the fact of being everywhere all at once. Time is just always with you in every regard, your entire life, and how difficult that is. And Luis is a rare case. Not, I, I would say, the vast majority of people wouldn't be able to handle it, especially be some in a case like hers where it's a horribly tragic future that she's going to have to live with. And it's it's very commendable that she still chose to have this relationship with Ian and still chose to carry out the raising of this daughter and having the daughter knowing that she's going to die. And it's really because there was so much love there that it was worth it. And knowing her daughter and being with her daughter, it was enough. Even for the short amount of time that it was, it was still enough for her to make that decision to continue forward with that. Whereas Ian is an example of someone and it's not about intelligence because you said earlier only like you have to be extremely intelligent. He's incredibly intelligent, but he wouldn't be able to accept that. He wouldn't be able to do this language. He wouldn't be able to have time as a circle because he probably, if he, if he saw this future, he would have tried to alter it. And so Luis is very unique in that situation where she not only was able to absorb the language and change her brain chemistry and become a circle – uh, mentally with time, but she was able to accept her future. And I guess from a more relatable context, not running away from pain or yeah. trauma or trying to escape the past, escape the future, you're, you're accepting it, you're accepting the progression of time, and you're accepting time. And I think that's a really great point why Ian probably wouldn't be able to learn it, even though He's the one that brings up the theory of how your brain changes. And he's also, he's probably being affected by it as well. He says, have you been having dreams? But I like how we never see his perspective. I like how we're always with Luis and what she's seeing. I think he's getting a little bit. Yeah. I think, yeah, obviously a little Not bit. as much as if her. If you're learning some of the language, because as they're both progressing, Luis's perspective, she's, you know, having these almost fainting spells of having visions of the future. And again, it's just brilliant filmmaking where we don't reveal that. Denis doesn't reveal that it's the future. He still makes it think it's the past until the third act of the film. And one of the best scenes in the movie to really explain how she's experiencing time once she's fully learned the language is obviously when communication just gets shut off by everybody. The Russians and the Chinese, they shut down first, and then America pulls the plug, go dark on everybody, and then everybody else follows suit around the world. And Elise, I mean, Louise, she... Start, she's starting to see the future and she's starting to see that there's something that can change here and we can prevent this from happening. We just have to call. So we have to call and communicate with everybody else. We have to share information. That's what the Habtabads want us to do. We have to work together. Exactly. We, can, we have to become whole. 
And so she gets the satellite phone, obviously, and she doesn't really know in the moment exactly what I'm doing. She's just doing it. She's kind of just like in in dialing, auto mode, dialing yeah. a number. She doesn't she, know. She's sort of in yeah. autopilot mode. And obviously, we know that she speaks Mandarin because she translates do, uh, President Shang on the security footage from the satellite footage earlier in the film. So she already speaks Great Mandarin. Note. So that's why she understands it. And then when she's getting the phone, she's not just learning Mandarin on the spot because she already understands it. But she and then we cut to her talking to President Shang in the clearly the future at a dinner party. It's this gala that's yeah, gala, being hosted yeah. by the President of the United States for all the countries because the the aliens have left and we've all come together as a global nation or a global species for the first time ever. And he says, you know, the president said he's very honored to host me here, but I'll be honest with you. The only reason why I came here is to meet you in person. And it's because of you that I stopped the military action that we were about to take, basically. Because they the declared war on the aliens. Yeah. They declared war on the aliens, so didn't Russia. And obviously everyone was going to start firing on them, probably. And America was probably going to follow suit as well. And I'll never forget what you said to me. You spoke to me, my wife's dying words. And in the moment, cross-cutting the future and present where she's being held at gunpoint through the door with Ian behind her and then in front of her from, what's his name, Elio's dad from Call Me By Your Name. Uh, oh, Steinberg, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Michael Stolberg. Michael Stoll, yeah. Uh, he plays the, Stolberg. I'm guessing, CIA agent. Agent yeah, Halpern. He's a CIA agent who has her at gunpoint. And she's speaking Mandarin, speaking the last words that... President Shang's wife spoke to him at the same time that he's speaking those words, whispering them into her ear, and also reveals his private phone number to her, meaning that and in the present moment, she's learning and experiencing, and she's using the power of the language from the heptapods to experience. Yeah, exactly. Using that tool to experience the memory in the future that she's already had in the future of Shang telling her the dying words, then revealing the phone number to her. So she's accessing that, meaning that once you learn this language, you can kind of just travel to any point in experience of your life. It's basically like a cheat code around the grandfather paradox. Exactly, yeah. Because a good point. it's it's all at once. It's every you're all the memories coinciding in every moment. You're always with every memory, the future and the past. So it is in a way, it's a way around the grandfather paradox. Which is very common paradox in a lot of science fiction films that yeah. deal with any kind of time traveler aliens. Like, really. how did she know the number if she didn't dial it yet? Exactly. exactly. Interstellar, yeah. the grandfather paradox. Mm-hmm. Like, how did the beings evolve to that fifth dimension if they came from us and if they were going to die anyways? Grandfather paradox, just a, an answer. Yeah, and the, it, it does it in a new way that we hadn't seen before. And there's there's so many great moments of symbology of life in the film. And I think of... 2001 a lot when I see this film and especially the ships uh, the ships remind me of the monolith from 2001 obviously the black um, sto- the, the black texture almost as if it's made out of stone although the 2001 monolith is completely smooth and impossible and in an impossible shape pristine in the ships in arrival they have this like stone texture to them however they still remind they're very reminiscent of the 2001 monolith in in a way just like the monolith helped facilitate the evolution of apes into human beings and the birth of mankind, the ships in Arrival are the catalyst for a new evolution of mankind, a new evolution of humanity, and an evolution of our minds, symbolizing, you know, Luis is the first human being to evolve. Her brain evolves in a way. She's not a linear person anymore. She's, she's a circle. And so she's basically evolved as a human being. So just as the dawning of man 
was the beginning of the monoliths, was the cause of the monolith's appearance. Uh, the evolution of man is the cause of the ship's arrivals and arrival. That's a good point. And also, there's a symbol of death and life in terms of the ship interior. And so there's this common expression, the light at the end of the tunnel, referring to someone who's near death. And stay, follow the light at the end of the tunnel will bring you back to life and prevent you from dying and falling into darkness. And the interior ship is a light at the end of the tunnel in a lot of ways. So I look at that as a correlation of life and death with, El- with Louise inside the ship. Something that Ian says in this film is, is really important to humanity where he says we're a planet or basically a world full of nations, independent nations, basically with not one world leader. It's either him or the colonel says it's because they won't communicate. And humanity, that's one of our biggest flaws is we're so tribal and warring. And obviously the, the ideal thing would be here to have like one person to communicate to the entire nations for us all to work together but it's interesting to finally see it put in the film where it's probably impossible to ever happen but to have all the nations of the world finally stand together united with an alien invasion to work together we don't fully see it it just happens by the time she's learned the language but i think it's really fascinating but also before that just getting the realism of global politics of sharing information not sharing information trusting other nations trusting not trusting other nations, working together to an extent, keeping others in the dark. Obviously, there's communications in the beginning of the base camps and in the beginning of the arrival of the ships all over the world. But eventually, like I said, China goes dark, Russia goes dark. And once that happens, America goes dark. So basically, the three leading countries, global powers of the world, America is the most communicative to everybody else, you could say. But once all three go dark, then everyone follows suit. I believe that the only way that the nations of the world will unite and humanity will become one group, a collective, is if we if we ever learn that there are other races of alien, that there are other intelligent beings out there. It's the only way that it will cause a complete unition, unity of Amer- of Americans in every other nation. Well, they'd have to come to Earth too. Yeah, exactly. So it's like that's the only thing that would make us all come together as one people. But Unfor- I mean, unfortunately, because we will always remain divided as nations, unless the global the idea of global politics becomes interdimensional or uh, interstellar politics. I think it's really interesting, though. I think they did a great job of what would happen though if yeah. aliens came to Earth and how if we weren't met with a physical threat with violence, or, yeah, or yeah, possible death or extinction, but just met with a mystery of a question, sort of a puzzle, how to communicate with these beings. I think they did a really realistic job of how it would go in terms of, like I said, not sharing information and different countries using different methods to try to communicate, whether it's obviously with America using linguist experts, which I'm I'm sure they all tried, but then eventually China communicating through a game, which obviously we have that great piece of dialogue where Luis basically says, if they're using a game, there's consequences to actions. There's a winner and a loser. If you give them a hammer, then everything to them is going to be a nail, basically. And I think it's a great metaphor. And the nuance and, and the risks involved in it. Yeah, it's a lot more – it's less complex and yeah. leads to violence, I'm sure. And there's there's one little plot hole. It's not really a plot hole, but I, I, I do wish they could have expelled, explained it in some way. 
And I understand why it's not in the film of why the heptapods can't just write in English. Because they're, they see all time at once. So they obviously know the future of humanity helping them. And under probably and they would know the language. they would know the language of humanity's different languages in the future, and they probably wouldn't even be English in three thousand in the year three thousand. But still, they would know what English was, and as well as the other major languages of Earth. And so I'm I'm guessing it's they because they can only write in that logogram. It's probably why they don't like write in English. <laughs> I would have I think it could have helped explain that for me why they only wrote in logogram in their own language even though they understood english and they have been communicating with humans in their future well it's it's actually interesting that is a thought provoking loophole because that's something that take makes me take it down from a 10 to a 9.5 because exactly if louise can extract a certain point in time to remember what president shang spoke to her when she whispered it to just her just for knowledge and future in the knowledge future yeah why can't the heptapods already access to the point where they've learned English? The explanation would be that they never learn English. Well, no, they they learn English in this film. So that's the thing. I think the explanation is they have to let the humans, let Luis teach them English so that we can understand, so that Luis can understand the heptapod language. So basically, maybe Luis thinks she's teaching them English when really she's teaching herself how to speak the heptapod language. You yeah, know, like breaking, that could be, yeah. Breaking down English to understand their language. So I'm assuming that maybe both are true, where they do know English already, but they're letting her and Ian eventually learn the language through explaining English. And also maybe it, maybe it helps them get humanity to work together to yeah. solve the problem. yeah. But I think that that's what makes it seems like it's a reverse engineering of a course. Like you already speak a language, yeah. but you need someone else to know your language. Yeah. So that's something that I wish I could have gotten a little bit of exposition about that. Because when I watch this movie, yeah. I'm like, shouldn't they already know the language? I never really thought about it until now, but I think that I think that makes sense to me now. I'm a very inquisitive person. Well, <laughs> I hope that that's a solid theory that you accept. I accept it. I mean, I think the movie's great, but I that's there's that. Um. Which makes me knock it down from a 10 to a 9.5. Because Luis, at that point, she's not at the point where she can just access any yes. point in time. So she, she's not fluent yet. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's what it is. They're probably like, oh, she's taking forever. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that. They probably know English as well as Chinese and the other major languages. But they're just getting the humans, humans to yeah. get on their level and on their page with their language. So... They're kind of just playing along. That's my guess. That's probably correct. I think that's right. And that's, like they knew Abbott was going to die. They yeah. knew the explosion was going to happen. Mm -hmm. They waited for it to happen. Obviously, I think it's a great little catalyst or, or a disruption of uh, a progression in plot for the characters. Like we're making progress and then let's have some internal radicalized soldiers try to take matters into their own hands. Mm -hmm which ruins the potential of communicating even more until Louise just goes by herself into the field and they drop that mini ship to her. Yeah. I think that, and also it's funny, this movie was so reminiscent of Man of Steel because she did the same thing in Man of Steel. Go yeah. Went in a little <laughs> ship. That's a good point. <laughs> With like a breather and stuff. Around cornfields. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they had like, they're kind of like a kinship and like a like a cousin nature, yeah, both of those films actually, in a little bit. I never thought about that. And yeah. the, uh, the, the, the texture of the ship in Man of Steel is like not that far off from the arrival I stuff. mean, even the wide shots of the yeah. 360 wide shot of, oh my God, 360 wide shot of Superman facing off in front of the, the Kryptonians with the army behind him. It's not that far off from Arrival. Yeah. Wow. 
I, never... I always I always think of Man of Steel when I watch this movie. Now I do. <laughs> and just Amy Adams being just like a normal person being put into a black spaceship. Yeah, and aesthetically, they, they do look similar. They do. They do. Wow. That's cool. That's pretty badass. I love this movie, man. I really do. And when it they comes... also, I'm sorry, they also uh, predicted lockdowns. It's <laughs> a few years before ours. Quite a few. This movie, when it comes to science fiction, I love slow burns. And I love when a slow burn is done well with science fiction, whether it's aliens or, or whatever. Like Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a really good example of that. We watched that recently. On Twitch, that's a slow burn science fiction where once things start going, it takes like the, the second and third act to really get involved and understand what's happening uh, and the scope of it. It wasn't – there's no exposition spoon feeding yeah. in that, that film in this one. And I, I think that it's just a really great storytelling, really great filmmaking, and – Similar to how we were talking about recently how everyone forgot about Inception because Christopher Nolan's filmography is so stacked. This might be a movie in like five, ten years because Denise's filmography is so stacked that it might get shadowed by Dune, by Blade Runner, by Dune Part 2, and some other movies if he makes in the future. But it's really, really sensational. I think it's probably a top three movie in his filmography maybe, honestly. It's – um. It's, it's tough. It's just like Nolan. It's hard to rank his movies. Because with Denis, like, I feel like Prisoners is a top three movie for him. So isn't Dune. And then it's like Blade Runner 2049 Arrival. I put Blade Runner 2049 over Dune. But it's pretty close. But I put Prisoners over Dune. Just because Prisoners, Prisoners might be Prisoners his best is, movie. Prisoners on Sunday is great as well. On Sunday, yeah, on Sunday that twist. Terrific. I mean, that twist, man. It's got the most shocking twist I've seen since Fight Club. It's insane. Yeah, it's, it's hard to rank his movies. Yeah, it's, it is a tough ranking. But, I mean, I can't stop thinking about whenever I'm making a list for Denis, like Prisoners always comes to mind at number one. Mm-hmm. But still, the scale and scope and filmmaking of Blade Runner and Dune are so impressive. And obviously, the roots of that were built here with Arrival with so much CGI involved as well as it was his first PG-13 movie. So making a film for a broader audience rather than just adults with R. What's, and what's interesting about Denis and his interpretation of science fiction, with spaceships specifically, we're used to spaceships um, being used in like maybe more metropolitan areas, uh, but he often likes to set his spaceships in nature. We see it a lot in Dune, especially when the Atreides are preparing to leave, and we see those, that great shot of the spaceship emerging from within the lake. And also behind the cliffs, behind Paul as he's walking on the shore, as well as obviously, I mean, Arrakis is just all desert, so it's just basically all nature. Uh, but he likes to juxtapose um, high tech spacecrafts with with nature, oftentimes. And Spielberg was really the first person to do that with Close Encounters in the middle of the desert with the spaceship landing there. However, I think Denis Villeneuve has taken a page out of his out of his book, and I think it's really interesting to see the contrast of these incredibly, impossibly high-tech spacecrafts just chilling, juxtaposed amongst beautiful nature. Arrival has really great wide shots. One of my favorites is we get a great sort of helicopter wide of one of the bean ships. I think it's the one that they eventually go to. The bean ship. Yeah, that they eventually have their army base at. And it's really incredible to see behind the scenes. I was talking earlier how they, they filmed the locations. They filmed the, filmed the landscapes and add CGI. So obviously the ship's CGI. But this one in particular is shot. It's on a farmland. And there's obviously like houses and square crop fields. 
But what they did was they erased all the houses, all the roads and everything there to eliminate them as well as they darkened up the grass, got rid of the squares of the different crops, the different fields of grass, added trees, changed the color tone to a much more Everest green, a more uh-huh. vi- vibrant, darker green. But it's really filmed, but then just enhancing it so much to increase the, to make the image look more natural. But then the entire landscape looks completely undisturbed. So mm-hmm. there's this high-tech intergalactic spaceship on undisturbed land on Earth. It's really fascinating. So that's with the green field, the main one? Yeah, America, the wide one. That's yeah. where it was? Yeah, so even the, even the shots of the grass when we're on the ground, like there's a shot of when Luis is like freaking out after the ship has just taken off and there's trucks coming up to her on the dirt road. This, the trucks are real and she's real, obviously, and the, the camera's shot on location, but then they add tall grass. Uh-huh. The grass around her is all added CGI. Oh, wow, I didn't even To make notice. it look more like undisturbed because they wanted to make it look like this this ship parked on undisturbed land but it's a field a field like in farmland it's probably a cheap place to shoot it probably worked for location as well as i mean you i'm sure it was the perfect horizon line and landscape that didn't he wanted yeah and he's like okay there's a couple houses and farms here whatever we'll just erase them exactly and then but then when you have a close-up shot like louise running around the field they just add cgi grass it's yeah. really fast so the grass is darkened and more vibrantly green versus like more of a very light green like a lot of the grass around the farmland yeah that's i mean that suits what i was just saying i think he just really wanted to have that strong contrast of nature and futuristic technology exactly in one spot and not just nature undisturbed, undisturbed nature. nature yeah I think it works really well because it's a stunning location. I was I was always wondering like where the hell did they shoot this? It's beautiful because I and I guess it's not the middle of nowhere. It really it's just like a, a little bit. It's it's kind of compar- but, comparatively but to like a coastal city. Sure. Yeah, but it's like <laughs> civilized in some yeah, way. Yeah, there, there people live there. Yeah, I'll, so, I'll yeah. send you a photo yeah, later. It's I'm cool. curious. I want to see that. Hopefully, you can put it up on the screen for the viewers. Yeah, yeah, we'll put it on the screen for the up video the version. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm editing this episode. <laughs> yeah, you got this, man. This is a James edit. What else you got for Inception, man? I mean, Inception. <laughs> well, I really like Inception. <laughs> Arrival. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hold on. <one> second. <laughs> this fucking guy. Uh, we said all of my fun facts. Is that Morse code? Yes. Yeah. What else? Yes. I think I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I think we covered everything that I wanted to discuss, and I really enjoy this movie. I think it's it's gorgeous. Again. Demand second and third watches. If you've only seen it once, watch it ASAP because you'll get so much more out it's of it. It's a movie where, like, after you watch it, you're like, I need to watch it again. But, dude, when I within six minutes, I was crying when it's I watched it the other night. Yeah. And I haven't seen it in, like, a year or two. But, like, when you know that what you're seeing in the first act is yeah. visions of the future, memories of the future of her daughter dying and not the past, so much more emotional. I like how this movie takes place over several months. Yeah. It's not like when you walk in – when I walked in this movie, I was like, oh, this, they're going to solve this problem, like, in a couple of days. But I like how long it takes for the story to unfold. She has a great house, too. She's got she, a wonderful house. She must make good money off those books, man. Yeah. She's right on, like, a lake. Beautiful home. Really nice place. But um, she does well for herself. That wraps our episode of Denis Villeneuve's Arrival. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast, besides sharing us with your family and friends, is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. You'll have access to weekly bonus episodes for every single patron. You can also get the ad-free experience of every single episode for the minimum $5 tier. We're doing that holiday card. If you want to get a holiday card in the mail in person from us this holiday season, 
$10 minimum tier. Sign up right now. James will sing at your doorstep. Yes, we will, we'll come caroling with hot chocolate outside your door. No, that'll be a $1,000 tier. But, um, <laughs> and uh, again, leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen. Our chosen one patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.